Shelley mentioned to you already that last fall we began reading through the book of Daniel, the story of a young man who was taken captive as his nation lost a war and forced into exile as a prisoner of war, somewhere around 605 BC. It's the story of him and his friends and many other people whose life began with tragic circumstances, and yet their faith was unwavering as they discovered the reality of God with them. Last weekend, we moved into the second half of the book, beginning in chapter 7, and it becomes very, very different. Those first six chapters are all stories, quite amazing stories, but written in plain narrative. But when you get to chapter 7, it all changes, and the style of writing is very difficult. It's called something with an unusual name, apocalyptic. The word really means revelation. It doesn't mean big disaster. And the style of writing is much more about optimism than impending doom. And optimism because no matter how difficult things are, God is on the move, God is working, and he's with his people. And so the writing helps them, in a sense, to understand that. But it's difficult to read. I don't know if it was difficult for them to read. It's certainly difficult for me to read and always to understand what's going on. You could say the word apocalyptic means unveiled, which we've called the series. It's a revealing of things. And usually the format goes like this. There's a bit of a story. There's almost always a human being who hears or sees the story. Then there's some otherworldly being who comes along and explains the story. And the person who's listening has a new way of looking at reality. These stories you can find both inside and outside the Bible. It was a way of writing. But there would often be this unveiling of a divine plan, a contrast between good and evil, and the imminent arrival of what God is going to do when his kingdom comes. The story is often told, filled with metaphors and images, and it can be tempting to try and find a meaning for every single word in the sentence. What might this mean? What might that mean? Sometimes we can. Sometimes we can't because the goal was not simply to figure out everything, but to get the big picture of what was happening. And that's what we're trying to do. The symbols that you see, they're not really ciphers or hieroglyphics where one equals one. That's not always that. Sometimes they're just designed to evoke an image of perhaps joy, perhaps it's fear, perhaps it's wonder, but they evoke something within the hearers or the readers and as we listen and read together, we're going to focus far more on the content than on the style of writing. One of the things that we need to do, though, as we read this, is to locate these stories in the whole of Scripture. It's really easy when you read fantastical stories that we're about to, to get all over the place and figure out what's going on and come up with an idea of what might it mean without placing it in the grand story of what God is doing to love and rescue and redeem not just his people, but his entire creation. And when we forget the context, it's quite easy to imagine. This is something to do with North America in the 21st century. Let me clear that up for you. This is nothing to do with North America in the 21st century, at least not in the original context. But it does speak to the reality of where and how we live. This apocalyptic genre grew out of suffering. It wasn't written by comfortable people living in the suburbs. It was people who were living life as bad as it can possibly get who desperately needed hope. And the writings were given to them to remind them that there is a God who loves them and cares for them and is coming to help them. God was comforting his people as he, these letters were written. Evil would come to an end and God's reign would become complete. One Bible scholar, Wendy Witter, she writes this, the purpose of apocalyptic literature was not to write out history. It was to promise a clean cosmic slate. I like that. 
The purpose is not to write out history so we can figure it out, but to promise a clean cosmic slate. God will wipe the slate clean and things will begin all over again. This weekend we're in chapter 8. And it really might look very similar to chapter 7 that we looked at last week where Daniel had these visions of all sorts of strange beasts and fighting going on in the heavenly realms and beasts were being killed and the Son of Man was coming along and sitting upon a throne. It might seem similar. And yet there are differences. One of the most obvious ones is in the writing itself. The book of Daniel is unusual in our Bible in that it's written in two languages. The first chapter begins in Hebrew, the language of people who lived in Jerusalem before they were taken to exile. Chapter 2, partway through, switches to Aramaic, a language that was used among a lot of people groups further east of Israel. And that switch to the language begins when Daniel and his friends arrive and they begin to be interrogated. But as we get to chapter 8, it switches again and goes back to Aramaic. Kind of strange. Nobody's entirely sure why. Perhaps it's because the focus is now upon God's people maybe one day being able to go home to Jerusalem. And it matches the location of where the chapter is looking. But it's much more than a switch up of languages that's going on here. The style is very different too. One of my favorite authors, a guy called John Goldingay, he says this. Chapter 7 is an impressionist painting open to several interpretations. Chapter 8 is a political cartoon. I like that. With the names of the characters incorporated to make sure the reader understands it. As exercises in theology and communication, the two versions thus complement each other, he says. Chapter 7 is deep, elusive, and imaginative. Chapter 8 is sober, explicit, in concrete. In a sense, one is up in the heavens, and then we get to chapter 8, it's zooming right down to particular circumstances here on earth. And if you didn't have a chance to be part of what we were talking about last weekend, I'd love to encourage you to go to our website, fccalgary.com, or one of our social media channels so that you can review it and watch that again. Let me dive into chapter 8 with you. We'll start at verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me at first. In the vision, I saw myself in Susa, the capital, in the province of Elam, and I was by the Ulai gate. I looked up and saw a ram standing beside the gate. It had two horns. Both horns were long, but one was longer than the other, and the longer one came up second. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. All the beasts were powerless to withstand it. It and no one could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased and it became strong. This is a couple of years after Daniel's first vision. He's in the city of Susa or at least in the vision in the dream he's there. And he sees this ram, not a cool truck, just to be clear but an animal, and a real animal this time. All the animals we read about last week were weird hybrid things with wings and legs and heads and eyes. This is just a real animal, and it's a ram. That's an animal that the Old Testament often uses to refer to the ruler of a kingdom, a king or a prince, someone like that. But who is this king? Well, that's a question we're going to have to hold on to and wait for Daniel to tell us more. The ram had two horns, one was longer than the other, and it was an aggressive animal. It dominated animals to the north and the south and the west. No mention of the east. Why is that? Another question we're going to have to hold on to. Nobody could oppose it or defeat it. We get to verse 5. As I was watching, 
a male goat appeared from the west, coming across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. The goat had a horn between its eyes. It came toward the ram with the two horns that I had been standing beside the gate, and it ran at it with savage force. I saw it approaching the ram. It was enraged against it and struck the ram, breaking its two horns. The ram did not have power to withstand it. It threw the ram down to the ground and trampled upon it. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from its power. Then the male goat grew exceedingly great, but at the height of its power, the great horn was broken. And in its place, there came up four prominent horns towards the four winds of heaven. Daniel's attention has shifted from the ram to a goat, not the goat, the greatest of all time. And it's not a unicorn either, even though it only has one horn. It's just a goat, weirdly, with one horn. Four-legged, hairy goat. But why has it only got one horn? That's unusual. As Daniel tells the story, the only really fantastical part in it is this goat is seemingly a little bit like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer because it can cross the earth without touching the ground. It goes so fast. Interesting. This has, goat has directions as well. It goes west and north and south. No mention of east. Why is that? A battle ensues, goat versus ram. Who wins? Well, the goat had savage force. It was enraged. It grew exceedingly great. Who wins? Well, the goat wins, of course. Maybe he is the greatest of all time after all. Maybe you should buy the Ford and forget having a ram. Just saying. <laughs> this is the sort of thing you shouldn't be reading into your Bible making assumptions. But something else happens in verse 8. The goat's big horn is broken and four other horns emerge. What on earth is this about? It's certainly different. And so we read in verse 9. Out of one of them came another horn, a little one, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. It grew as high as the host of heaven, it threw down to earth some of the host, some of the stars, and trampled on them. Even against the prince of the host, it acted arrogantly. It took the regular burnt offering away from him and overthrew the place of his sanctuary. Because of wickedness, the host was given over to it together with the regular burnt offering. It cast truth to the ground and kept prospering in what it did. Then I heard a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is this vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled? And he answered him, For two thousand three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. In verse 9, now we've got another horn, a little one. What's that about? More directions, growing power to the south and east and towards the beautiful land. How come no north or west? And where is the beautiful land? Verse 10, it grows. It grows as high as the heavens. This little horn has become gigantic. It's grown to outstanding proportions. It's kind of the little big horn, I suppose. It attacked and defeated some of the heavenly host. It even went to head to head with the prince of the host. Who's this prince? In verses 11 and 12, it even seems like it can do harm to the prince as the place of worship is destroyed, truth is dispensed with, and the goat, the goat prospers, getting stronger and stronger and richer. How can that be? 
there appears to be no limits to this little horn's success. In verse 13, some holy ones show up. Do you remember them from last week? Saints, holy ones, people set apart from God. The grapes, anybody remember? Those grapes cost me $14. I just want you to know that. They were really expensive grapes. And they tasted so good. But it's why I don't have any more today. Because I'm miserable. I'm not buying them again. God's grapes. God's holy ones. People set apart. They have a conversation. And they're trying to figure out what's going on. And one's asking about that. How long is this going to go on for? Can no one intervene? Is there no one who can stop the horrors that we're witnessing here? Verse 14. There's this enigmatic response. It'll just be 2,300 sleeps. I mean, can you imagine a parent ever giving a number like that to a kid? When's Christmas? 2,300 sleeps. When are we going on holiday? 2,300 sleeps. Like, who talks that way? And then in verse 15, it carries on. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I tried to understand it. Then someone appeared before me. Aha, there's the hint having appearance of a man. And I heard a human voice by the Uli calling, Gabriel, help this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I became frightened and fell prostrate. But he said to me, understand, O mortal, that the vision is for the time of the end. The angel Gabriel, we usually associate him with Christmas. He's a commission to help Daniel understand what's going on. And he has the same response as just about everybody in the New Testament that ever saw an angel. They fall flat on their face in the ground, utterly terrified, because angels are not cute little things that you put in your Christmas tree. They're terrifying. If you ever meet one, be afraid. And he says, O mortal, or some translations will put it, O son of man. We looked at that phrase last weekend. And he mentions the time of the end. And I want to pause here. Because many of us get easily wound up thinking about the end, the end times. Is that what Gabriel is referring to, the end times? As we keep reading through this chapter, you're going to discover the answer is no, it's not. This chapter is not about the end times. End simply means the end of something. Could be the end of the day. Could be the end of a movie. Could be the end of a journey somewhere. Could be the end of a sermon. And I know many of you are praying, dear Lord, let it be so. But in reality, it doesn't have to mean the end times. And even more real, we do live in the end times. They began when Jesus was raised from the dead. And God's resurrection power was let loose in our world. We have lived in the end times for a long time. The time between Jesus' resurrection and his second advent is the end times. And Gabriel continues with his explanation. We're going to discover what this end was all about. This is a little long, but listen to it with me. As he, Gabriel, was speaking to me, I fell into a trance, face to the ground. Then he touched me and set me on my feet. He said, listen, and I'll tell you what will take place later in the period of wrath, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. The male goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four king others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. At the end of their rule, when the transgressions have reached their full measure, a king of bold countenance shall arise, skilled in intrigue. He shall grow strong in power, shall cause fearful destruction, 
and shall succeed in what he does. He shall destroy the powerful and the people of the holy ones. By his cunning, he shall make the seat prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall be great. Without warning, he shall destroy many and shall even rise up against the prince of princes. But he shall be broken and not by human hands. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. As for you, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. Daniel falls into a trance. He collapses. Whenever that happened to me, I ended up needing a pacemaker, but he seems to do okay without that. He gets back up again. Gabriel helps him get back up and begins explaining what's going on. Remember we talked about this writing, about a story, somebody listening, some otherworldly being, in this case, Gabriel. Daniel is going to have a new way of seeing reality as Gabriel explains this. And he's going to tell him not only about the present, but the future and God's plan the contrast between good and evil. Here goes, verse 20. The ram with two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. Cyrus became the king of Persia when it was a small vassal state of Media. Media is the big country. Persia is the little one that's doing what it's told. But after nine years, Cyrus rebelled against the empire. He defeated the Median king and he swallowed up the once formidable Medes into his own empire that people will often call Media Persia. This new empire expanded. It went west into Babylonia and Syria and what we would call Turkey today, north into Armenia and the Caspian Sea. It went south towards Egypt and Ethiopia. It also extended actually east into India, but Daniel didn't mention east, partly because in Jewish culture at the time, Persia was as far east as they knew about, and they weren't interested in anything further east than that. It became this gigantic empire. And then in verse 21, there's this goat with one horn, He comes from the West, that means Greece, we're told, and its first king, Alexander the Great. He shows up right here in your Bible, that's who it's talking about. Alexander was born in 356. His dad was a great warrior king, Philip II of Macedon, we'd call it Macedonia today. It'd been a backwater little place in what we would, used to be Yugoslavia, the Balkans, just a little tiny place. But when Philip came to power, he was a great general and managed to lead victory after victory after victory. He brought all the neighboring city-states in together to form a kingdom. He was assassinated in 336 BC. And the kingdom went to his 20-year-old son, Alexander. 20. Within two years... Alexander and his armies had marched east all the way to Persia. Within two years, he defeated everybody and everyone. And then had victories over King Darius III way out there that left him the ruler of an empire from Greece to India. That's huge. Alexander, though, died when he was only 32 years old. He'd taken over what was the so-called known world in such a short time. And in verse 22, we're told of the four horns which represent the breakup of Alexander's empire. It's exactly what happened. He had no viable heir, and the empire was split between four of his generals who were always bickering with one another. Macedonia, the original place where they started, went to Cassander. Thrace and Asia Minor, or Turkey, went to Lysmasius. Babylon and Syria went to Seleucus. That's the one we're going to look at. And Egypt went to Ptolemy, down there, all the pyramids. And this is where the explanation about the little horn starts. Gabriel tells Daniel, you need to look ahead for this one. 
And that's where this vision is going and it looks ahead. It looks ahead by a couple of centuries actually. The little horn is Antiochus IV of the Seleucid dynasty, the ones that were in Syria. He liked to call himself Epiphanes, which means God manifest. Modesty was not his strong suit. He was skilled in intrigue, as we're told, because he did in his nephew so that he could claim the throne for himself. Remember in verse 9 how he had directions for this one, south and east in the beautiful land? Well, you had to go south because he was already north. And east made fair enough. The beautiful land, where's that? Most likely it's Jerusalem or Judea, where Daniel and his exiles were taken from when they lost the war. And in verses 23 through 25, in some difficult reading, you see what a cruel person Antiochus was. People are slaughtered. He steals money from the temple in Jerusalem to pay off his debts. He turns the temple into a worship center for the god Zeus. Bible scrolls are burned in the streets. Pigs considered ritually unclean in the Jewish faith were sacrificed within the temple. In fact, historic accounts of the time will tell you this. Let me read it. The king sent letters by messengers to Jerusalem and the towns of Judah. He directed them to follow customs strange to the land, to forbid burnt offerings and sacrifices and drink offerings in the sanctuary of God to profane Sabbaths and festivals, to defile the sanctuary and the holy ones, to build altars and sacred precincts and shrines for idols, to sacrifice pigs and other unclean animals. And it continues. Now in the 15th day of the month Chislev, in the 145th year, they erected a desolating sacrilege on the altar of burnt offering. They also built altars in the surrounding towns of Judah and offered incense at the doors of the houses and in the streets. The books of the law that they found, they tore to pieces and burned with fire. Anyone found possessing the book of the covenant or anyone who adhered to the law was condemned to death by decree of the king. They kept using violence against Israel, against those who were found month after month in towns. On the 25th day of the month, they offered sacrifice on the altar that was in the top of the burnt offering. The temple had been desecrated. The prince, though, that we've been reading about, the prince that Antiochus stood against is God himself. We read about that in verse 11. And we read that the encounter damaged the prince. How could that be? How could a mere mortal, even if you were as strong as Antiochus IV, how could you really hurt God? There's another question to hold on to. But in verse 25, we also read that he shall be broken and not by human hands. In other words, he wasn't killed by war or by political intrigue, but he got sick and he died because God always wins. Verse 26, we get to the 2,300 sleeps. That's complicated. Gabriel simply says, it's a long time away. Don't worry about that. It could mean 2,300 sleeps. It could mean because they had sacrifices twice a day when things were going well in Jerusalem that it was half that, 1,300 sleeps. Who knows? But it really means a time to come when things will change. But so what? I mean, fascinating Bible and history lesson. I hope you know I tried hard to get it right for you. But what's it actually got to do with us just because we know our ancient history about Alexander the Great? Well... It means this much, empires come and go. We talked about that last weekend, remember? British Empire, French Empire, Dutch Empire, all gone. Nazis, Soviets, Maoists, empires all fall apart. These days, they're far more economic than political. Meta, Amazon, 
alphabet. They'll all go to. They all disappear eventually. Empires come and they go, but God reigns forever. The chapter may not be the blueprint for the future that we might have been expecting or hoping for, but it was written to bring comfort to God's people who found themselves in exile, wondering what was going on at home, wondering could God do anything to help them and change things. Its goal was to bring comfort, not to give a diary for setting dates. In fact, this whole idea of reading apocalyptic writing, and especially the numbers in it, and then using them as a crystal ball to predict the future, is little more than an attempt for us to take control from God so we know what's going on. And I want you to think about that. This idea that we can grab things out of the Bible, turn them into a crystal ball, stargaze, and figure out what's going to happen next, is little more than our sinful attempt to try and take control away from God. So now I know all the secrets of the universe. Please don't. After all, Jesus said, about that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. We don't have a timeline. God doesn't intend us to have a timeline because Jesus doesn't have a timeline. And yet, even though the numbers may be enigmatic or perplexing, they do indicate something that we should be aware of. God does set limits. He does set limits. There is only so far he will allow human power to go, and then he will intervene. Evil will not continue to rule forever. God draws a line in the sand, and at this point in history with Antiochus, he draws a line in the sand where this is no more. In many ways, while I said it's not a prophecy about today, in many ways, though, we do recognize that Daniel's vision of what happens, of evil and violence and God bringing it to an end, it happens in many times and places. The Apostle John once wrote this to his friends and said, Children, it's the last hour. As you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So many Antichrists have come. From this we know it's the last hour, so many of them, because over and over you see the same thing being repeated as humans lusting after power set God to the side, believing we can do our own thing. And for a while he may let us, but he draws a line in the sand. Antiochus functions as an archetype, a model, somebody that we shouldn't be modeling our lives on, but we see happening all the same. We see it in the lives and lies of others who lusts for power, even in our world right now. But God has set limits. Evil does not continue forever. The reality so often is life is hard. And the people of God are not exempt. Daniel and his friends knew that. The early followers of Jesus who were persecuted and martyred knew that. Throughout history and around the globe, we see that. Jerome told us that today in some of the stories that he was sharing of how people are struggling with persecution. God's people are not exempt. What would make any of us think we are any different? What would any of us have reason to think my life will be easy? You see, not even God is exempt from the challenges of life. Remember the story, the little horn did damage to the prince? It's not as though God's sitting up in heaven and has no skin in the game here. He does, literally. Jesus is God in the flesh. And what happened to him? He gave his life to win our freedom. He gave his life to give us new life. Have you ever received that gift from Jesus? A gift of new life? Where he promises to change your life and so reorient it? You could hardly believe what he's doing in your journey. 
The Apostle Paul once wrote and said, if anyone's in Christ, there's a new creation. Everything old has passed away and look, new things have come into being. God can make our lives brand new. And his promises are one day, everything will be brand new. Jesus, the one seated on the throne said, see, I'm making everything new. God is making everything right. That's why we're involved in what he's doing. Why we talk about joining Jesus. Why we're intentional about being a multiracial, multilingual, multicultural church following Jesus. It's why we have a refugee sponsorship program, helping people come here and find safety. It's why we have international workers, we heard from one today, and people going on short-term missions to tell the story of Jesus to others. It's why we have our missions fund, to make all of these things happen. Because if these words are true, then we ought to be joining Jesus in what he's doing. We want to contribute to what he's doing as he calls us to join him. The apostle John said, after this, I looked And there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all the tribes and languages and peoples standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white, with palm branches in their hands. It's why we stand with the marginalized. It's why we fight against injustice. It's why we bring hope to the brokenhearted. It's why we've developed a community support center on Main Street, hosting our food bank, amongst other things. It's why we partner with the Mustard Seed, or Radiance Family Society, or Teen Challenge. It's why we host Grief Share and Celebrate Recovery. It's why we choose to be kind and embrace peace and generosity and live faithfully. Greed is a commodity whose stock is falling. Why don't we just get rid of it? Let it go. Envy and bitterness... They've got a limited shelf life, so why don't we just start right now saying bye-bye to those sorts of things. But I want to remind us all of this. Knowing something of God's future, it doesn't make life easy. Even as we partner with Jesus and join him in what he calls us to do. Joining Jesus doesn't make life easy. It doesn't solve all our problems. It certainly does not absolve us of hard work, but it helps to channel our efforts. There's one verse left I need to read to you. Verse 27. So I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I arose and went about the king's business. But I was dismayed by the vision and did not understand it. He's probably not the only one. Daniel was worn out by the experience. He had a rest and he went back to work. He knew he had to get on with life, even though this was perplexing and difficult. And this whole chapter of all this fantastical story of things going on in history and of God's ultimate victory, despite all of that, the last verse is so very ordinary. He felt sick, he went to bed. He felt better. He went to work. The end. It's so very ordinary. He'd worked his way up in the government, so he went about the king's business. But somehow, in some ways, even though it was complex, he also knew that he was about the business of the king of kings. And that's us. It won't be long till we go back outside the doors. And we'll be back to the ordinary soon enough. And maybe having been here, you'll have felt as confused as Daniel did and think, I have no idea what he's talking about. And it'll just seem so very ordinary. Another Sunday, another Monday, back to work, back to email. But 
We celebrate King Jesus here today. And something very ordinary becomes extraordinary. A simple meal, a little cracker, a small cup. As we literally join Jesus, receiving his grace and responding with faithful obedience. If you don't even know Jesus yet, you've never said yes to him. What a great day and way that you could, literally making this tiny little thing a symbol of your commitment to say yes to Jesus. Perhaps for the first time, perhaps for the tenth time. But you acknowledge who he is. You see, in the night Jesus was betrayed, they were having dinner. And Jesus took bread and he blessed it. And he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. I'm not so sure anybody really knew what he was talking about. Perhaps later they would come to understand, and we have, that a simple cracker, a piece of bread, reminds us of the Christ who gave everything for us. And in reality, somehow, the ordinary becomes extraordinary as we share in the very life of Jesus, his body broken for you. Let's eat and be thankful. Supper was ending, and he took a cup. He said to his friends, this cup is the new covenant. Signed, sealed, and delivered in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Something very ordinary. But it's extraordinary that Jesus gave himself for us. And today we can know that we are his, and he is ours, the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you today as we read a story that is confusing and yet is hope-filled despite all of the politics, despite all of the wars, despite all of the lies, even despite the scary images sometimes, we discover that Jesus always wins. Thank you that as he gave his life for us, that we could be redeemed and restored and forgiven, that he broke through the barrier and conquered death and sin and the evil one himself. Thank you for the reality that even in the challenge of our lives, be the ordinary or really mixed up, that Jesus always wins. Lord, I want to pray that as we are here and soon to leave, that we would go into a week that may seem ordinary, but we are commissioned by the very King of Kings to bear his light and his story. Thank you that you've called us out of darkness and into your light. Thank you that you've chosen to make things unveiled to us, that we can discover the wonder of your reality, even when we hurt, even when our lives feel so broken and falling apart like Daniel's did. May we today experience your comfort. May we know your grace and your strength. Would you give us your patience and your power that we could face our realities knowing that Jesus wins. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for always being with us and never forgetting us. Thank you today for Jesus. We pray in his name.